namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa buddhang dhammang sanghang namasami This next reading, uh, next chapter, 17, is um, from the same period when uh, Lumpur Sameda was teaching at uh, Wat Pananachat in Thailand for a few weeks in uh, 1982. But this uh, was uh, published in a booklet, small book called uh, Now is the Knowing. So there's this one and the next couple uh, of readings are all printed uh, came from that same period, but they were printed up together in that little book. I think it was Ajahn Jayasara who edited them and put them together and and had them printed. So this is called Buddha Dhamma Sangha. When people ask, "What do you have to do to become a Buddhist?" We say that we take refuge in Buddha Dhamma Sangha. And to take refuge, we recite a formula in the Pali language. Buddhang Saranangachami, I go to the Buddha for refuge. Dhammang Saranangachami, I go to the Dhamma for refuge. Sankhang Saranangachami, I go to the Sangha for refuge. As we practice more and more and begin to realize the profundity of the Buddhist teachings, it becomes a real joy to take these refuges. And even just reciting them inspires the mind. After many years as a monk, I still like to chant Buddhang Saranangachami. In fact, I like it more than I did at first, because then it didn't really mean anything to me. I just chanted it because I had to, because it was part of the tradition. Merely taking refuge verbally in the Buddha doesn't mean you take refuge in anything. A parrot could be trained to say Buddhang Saranangachami, and it would probably be as meaningful to a parrot as it is to many Buddhists. These words are for reflection, for looking at them and actually investigating what they mean, what refuge means, what Buddha means. When we say, I take refuge in the Buddha, what do we mean by that? How can we use that so it's not just a repetition of nonsense syllables, but something that really helps to remind us, gives us direction and increases our devotion, our dedication to the path of the Buddha? The word Buddha is a lovely word. It means the one who knows. And the first refuge is in Buddha as the personification of wisdom. Unpersonified wisdom remains too abstract for us. We can't conceive a bodiless, soulless wisdom. So as wisdom always seems to have a personal quality to it, using Buddha as its symbol is very useful. We can use the word Buddha to refer to Gautama, the founder of what is now known as Buddhism, the historical sage who attained Parinibbana in India 2,500 years ago, the teacher of the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path, the teachings from which we still benefit today. But when we take refuge in the Buddha, that doesn't mean that we take refuge in some, histor- in some historical prophet. We take refuge in that which is wise in the universe, in our minds. That which is not separate from us, but is more real than anything we can conceive with the mind or experience through the senses. Without any Buddha wisdom in the universe, life for any length of time would be totally impossible. It is the Buddha wisdom that protects. We call it Buddha wisdom. Other people can call it other things if they want to. These are just words. We happen to use the words of our tradition. We don't argue about Pali words, Sanskrit words, Hebrew, Greek, Latin, English, or any other words. We just use the term Buddha wisdom as a conventional symbol to help remind us to be wise, to be alert, to be awake. Many forest bhikkhus in Thailand use the word buddho as their meditation object. 
They first calm the mind by following the inhalations and exhalations using the syllables Buddho, and then begin to contemplate. What is Buddho, the one who knows? What is the knowing? When I used to travel around in northeast Thailand on Tudong, I liked to go and stay at the monastery of Achan Phan. Achan Phan was a much-loved and deeply respected monk, the teacher of the royal family, and he was so popular that he was constantly receiving guests. I would sit by his kuti and hear him give the most amazing Dhamma talks, all on the subject of Buddha, as far as I could see. It was all, the, all that he taught. He could make it into a really profound meditation, whether for an illiterate farmer or an elegant Western-educated Thai aristocrat. The main part of his teaching was not just about mechanically repeating Buddha, but about reflecting and investigating, awakening the mind to really look into the Buddha, the one who knows, to really investigate its beginning, its end, above and below, so that one's whole attention was stuck to it. When one did that, Buddha became something that echoed through the mind. One would investigate it, look at it, examine it, before it was said and after it was said, and eventually one would start listening to it and hear beyond the sound until one heard the silence. A refuge is a place of safety. And so when superstitious people came to my teacher Ajahn Chah, wanting charmed medallions or little talismans to protect them from bullets, knives, ghosts and so on, he would say, why do you want things like that? The only real protection is taking refuge in the Buddha. Taking refuge in the Buddha is enough. But their faith in Buddha usually wasn't quite as strong as their faith in those silly little medallions. They wanted something made out of bronze and clay, stamped and blessed. That's what's called taking refuge in bronze and clay. Taking refuge in superstition. Taking refuge in that which is truly unsafe and cannot really help us. Today, in modern Britain, we find that generally people are more sophisticated. They don't take refuge in magic charms. They take refuge in things like the bank. But that is still taking refuge in something that offers no safety. Taking refuge in the Buddha, in wisdom, means that we have a place of safety. When there is wisdom, when we act wisely and live wisely, we are truly safe. The conditions around us might change, we can't guarantee what will happen to the material standard of living, or that our bank will survive the decade. The future remains unknown and mysterious. But in the present, by taking refuge in the Buddha, we have the presence of mind now to reflect on and learn from life as we live it. Wisdom doesn't mean having a lot of knowledge about the world. We don't have to go to university and collect information about the world in order to be wise. Wisdom means knowing the nature of conditions as we experience them, not just being caught up in, reacting to and absorbing into the conditions of our bodies and minds out of habit, fear, worry, doubt, greed and so on. It's using Buddha, the one who knows, to observe that these conditions are changing. It's the knowing of that change that we call Buddha and in which we take refuge. We make no claims that Buddha is me or mine. We don't say, I am Buddha, but rather, I take refuge in Buddha. This is a way of humbly submitting to that wisdom, being aware, being awake. Although in one sense taking refuge is something we do all the time, the Pali formula we use is a reminder, because we forget. We habitually take refuge in worry, doubt, fear, anger, greed, and so on. The Buddha image is also a reminder. When we bow to it, we don't imagine that it is anything other than an image, a symbol. It is a reflection that makes us a little more aware of Buddha, of our refuge in Buddha Dhamma Sangha. The Buddha image sits in great dignity and calm, not in a trance, but fully alert, with a look of wakefulness and kindness, not caught in the changing conditions around it. The image is made of metal, while we have flesh and blood bodies, which make things much more difficult for us, but it's still a reminder. Some people become very puritanical about Buddha images, but here in the West, I haven't found them to be a danger. The real idols we believe in and worship that constantly delude us are our thoughts, views and opinions, our loves and hates, our self-conceit and pride. The second refuge is in the Dhamma, in ultimate truth or ultimate reality. Dhamma is impersonal. We don't in any way try to personify it, to make it any kind of personal deity. 
When we chant the verse on Dhamma in Pali, we say it is Sanditiko Akaliko Ehipasiko Opanaiko Pachatang Veditabo Vinyuhi. As Dhamma has no personal attributes, we can't even say it's good or bad, or anything that has a superlative or comparative quality. It is beyond the dualistic conceptions of mind. So when we describe Dhamma or give an impression of it, we do so through words such as Sanditiko, which means immanent, here and now. That brings us back into the present. We feel a sense of immediacy, of the now. You may think that Dhamma is something out there, something you have to find elsewhere, but Sanditiko Dhamma means that it is immanent, here and now. Akalika Dhamma means that Dhamma is not bound by any time condition. The word Akala means timeless. Our conceptual mind can't conceive of anything that is timeless because our conceptions and perceptions are time-based conditions. But what we can say is that Dhamma is Akala, not bound by time. Ehipasika Dhamma means coming and seeing, turning towards or going to the Dhamma. It means looking, being aware. It's not that we pray to the Dhamma to come and wait. Sorry. It is not that we pray to the Dhamma to come or wait for it to tap us on the shoulder. We have to put forth, we have to put forth effort. It's like Christ saying, knock on the door and it shall be opened. Ehipasiko means that we have to put forward that effort to turn towards that truth. Openaiko means leading inwards towards peace within the mind. Dhamma doesn't take us into fascination, excitement, romance or adventure, but leads to nibbana, to calm, to silence. Pachatang veditabo vinyuhi means that we can only know dhamma through direct experience. It is like the taste of honey. If someone else tastes it, we still don't know its flavor. We may know the chemical formula for honey, or be able to recite all the great poetry ever written about it, but only when we taste it for ourselves do we really know what it is like. It's the same with Dhamma. We have to taste it. We have to know it directly. Taking refuge in Dhamma is taking another safe refuge. It's not refuge in philosophy or intellectual concepts, in theories, ideas, doctrines or beliefs of any sort. It's not taking refuge in a belief in Dhamma. Sorry, it's not taking refuge in a, in a belief in Dhamma, in God or in some kind of force in outer space, or something beyond or separate, something we have to find later. The descriptions of the Dhamma keep us in the present, in the here and now, unbound by time. Taking refuge is an immediate, imminent reflection in the, in the mind. It's not just repeating Dhammang Saranangachami like a parrot, thinking, Buddhists say this, so I have to say it. We turn towards the Dhamma, we are aware now, taking refuge in Dhamma now, as an immediate action, an immediate reflection of being the Dhamma, being that very truth. Because our conceiving mind always tends to delude us, it takes us into becoming. We think, I'll practice meditation so that I'll become enlightened in the future. I'll take the three refuges in order to become a Buddhist. I want to become wise. I want to get away from suffering and ignorance and become something else. This is the conceiving mind, the desire mind, the mind that always deludes us. So rather than constantly thinking in terms of becoming something in the future, we take refuge in being Dhamma in the present. The impersonality of Dhamma bothers many people because devotional religion tends to personify everything, and people coming from such traditions don't feel right if they can't have some sort of personal relationship within a religion. I remember a French Catholic missionary who came to stay in our monastery and practice meditation. He felt at something of a loss with Buddhism because he said it was like, quote, cold surgery, unquote. There was no personal relationship with God. One cannot have a personal relationship with Dhamma. One cannot, one cannot say, I love the Dhamma, or the Dhamma loves me. There's no need for that. We only need a personal relationship with something we are not like our mother, father, husband or wife. Something separate from us. But we don't need to take refuge in mother or father, someone to protect us and love us and say, I love you no matter what you do. Everything is going to be all right. Pat us on the head. The Buddha Dhamma is a very mature refuge. 
It is a religious practice that is a complete sanity or maturity in which we no longer seek a mother or a father because we don't need to become anything anymore. We no longer need to be loved or protected by anyone. Instead, we can love and protect others. And that is all that is important. We no longer have to ask or demand things from others, whether from other people or even some deity or force that we feel is separate from us and has to be prayed to and asked for guidance. We give up all our attempts to conceive Dhamma as being this or that or anything at all and let go of our desire to have a personal relationship with the truth. We have to be that truth here and now. Being that truth, taking that refuge, calls for an immediate awakening, for being wise now, being Buddha, being Dhamma in the present. The third refuge is the Sangha, which means a group. Sangha may be the Bhikkhu Sangha, the order of monks, or the Arya Sangha, the group of noble beings, all those who live virtuously, doing good and refraining from evil by bodily action or speech. Here, taking refuge in the Sangha with Sanghang Saranangachami means we take refuge in virtue, in that which is good, virtuous, kind, compassionate and generous. We don't take refuge in those things in our minds that are mean, nasty, cruel, selfish, jealous, hateful, angry. Even though admittedly that is what we often tend to do out of heedlessness, out of not reflecting, not being awake, but just reacting to conditions. On the conventional level, taking refuge in the Sangha means doing good and refraining from doing evil by bodily action or speech. All of us have both good thoughts and intentions and bad ones. Sankharas, conditioned phenomena, are like that. Some are good and some aren't. Some are neutral. Some are wonderful and some are nasty. Conditions in the world are changing conditions. We can't just think the best, the most refined thoughts, and feel only the best and the kindest feelings. Both good and bad thoughts and feelings come and go, but we take refuge in virtue rather than in hatred. We take refuge in that in all of us. We take refuge in that in all of us which intends to do good, which is compassionate, kind, and loving towards ourselves and to others. So the refuge of Sangha is a very practical refuge for, today, for day-to-day living within the human form, in this body, in relation to the other bodies of other beings in the physical world we live in. When we take this refuge, we do not act in any way that causes division, disharmony, cruelty, meanness or unkindness to any living being, including ourselves, our own body and mind. This is being supatipano, one who practices well. When we are aware and mindful, when we reflect and observe, we begin to see that acting on impulses that are cruel and selfish only brings harm and misery to both ourselves and others. It doesn't take great powers of observation to see that. If you've met any criminals in your life, people who have acted selfishly and wickedly, you'll find them constantly frightened, obsessed, paranoid, suspicious, having to drink a lot, take drugs, keep busy, do all kinds of things, because living with themselves is so horrible. Five minutes alone with themselves without any dope or drink or distraction would seem to them like an eternal hell. Because of the karmic result of evil is so appallingly because the karmic result of evil is so appalling mentally. Even if they've never been caught by the police or sent to prison, don't think they're going to get away with anything. In fact, sometimes it's the kindest thing to put them in prison and punish them. It makes them feel far better. I was never a criminal, but I've managed to tell a few lies and do a few mean and nasty things in my lifetime, and the results were always unpleasant. Even today, when I think of those things, the memory is not pleasant. It's not something that I want to go to announce to everybody, not something that I feel joy about when I think of it. When we meditate, we realize that we have to be completely responsible for how we live. In no way can we blame anyone else for anything at all. Before I started to meditate, I used to blame people in society. If only my parents had been completely wise, enlightened arahants, I'd be all right. If only the United States of America had a truly wise, compassionate government that never made any mistakes, supported me completely and appreciated me fully. If only my friends were wise and encouraging and the teachers truly wise, generous and kind. If everyone around me was perfect, if society was perfect, if the world was wise and perfect, then I wouldn't have any of these problems. But... All have failed me. Well, my parents had a few flaws and they did make a few mistakes, but now, when I look back, I think they didn't make very many. 
When I was looking to blame others and desperately trying to think of my parents' faults, I really had to work at it. My generation was very good at blaming everything on the United States. That's really easy because the United States makes a lot of mistakes. But when we meditate, we can no longer get away with that kind of lying to ourselves. We suddenly realize that no matter what anyone else has done, or how unjust society might be, or what our parents might have been like, we can in no way spend the rest of our life blaming anyone else. That's a complete waste of time. We have to accept complete responsibility for our life and live it. Even if we did have miserable parents and we were raised in a terrible society with no opportunities, still doesn't matter. There is no one else to blame for our suffering now but ourselves, our own ignorance, selfishness and conceit. In the crucifixion of Jesus we can see a striking example of a man in pain, stripped naked, made fun of, completely humiliated and then publicly executed in the most horrible, excruciating way, yet without blaming anyone. Forgive them, Lord, they know not what they do. This is a sign of wisdom. It means that even if people are crucifying us, nailing us to the cross, scourging us, humiliating us in every way, it's our aversion, self-pity, pettiness and selfishness that are the problem, the suffering. It's not even the physical pain that is the suffering. It's the aversion. If Jesus Christ had said, curse you for treating me like this, he would have been just another criminal and would have been forgotten a few days later. Reflect on this, because we easily tend to blame others for our suffering, and we can justify that because many other people are mistreating us, or exploiting us, or don't understand us, or are doing dreadful things to us. We don't deny that, but we make nothing of it anymore. We forgive. We let go of those memories, because taking refuge in the Sangha means doing good here and now, and refraining from doing evil by bodily action and speech. So, may you reflect on this and really see Buddha Dhamma Sangha as a refuge. Look on them as opportunities for reflection and consideration. It's not a matter of believing in Buddha Dhamma Sangha, not a faith in concepts, but the using of symbols for mindfulness, for awakening the mind here and now, being here and now. many useful useful themes to consider in there both the the relationship between de, uh, devotional practice or the the sort of formal um, say enactment of uh, ritual and the repetition of, of words um, as a, an external demonstration of taking refuge and then the the internal quality and also the the different layers of of meaning within that even as an internal quality so this is uh, Extremely helpful uh, uh, teaching that that uh, Lumpur Sumedha is giving here, pointing to those those different levels of, of understanding that um, taking refuge in in the Buddha is not just looking to Gautama Buddha as our, our teacher, our our guide, uh, our mentor, but to ask that question: well, What is what is Buddha? What is that that awake quality? And how? What's the real refuge? Is that and that capacity of our own heart, our own mind, to be awake, to be wise. And this is a, very much a, a, a theme that Lumpur Cha stressed as well. And he would often shock people by saying something like, um, "The you know the the Buddha who is a who is a refuge is not the Buddha that lived two and a half thousand years ago. You know the Buddha is is alive here and now. That's why Buddha is a refuge, and that." Uh, that Buddha is Puru, the, the one who knows. And, and in the Thai language, they would use that same phrase, Puru, is both, uh, it's like as if the word, the words Gotama Buddha and the word awareness were the same word. You use the same term, like you use Puru as like a description of the Buddha, and you can also um, use it as a, a description or uh, describing the quality of wakeful awareness as well. So that that this um, stresses that what is the, the genuine refuge is not the the statue on the shrine or the the uh, the the memory of a of a historical Buddha the the refuge in Dhamma is not the collection of of um, uh, Dhamma teachings contained in the Tipitaka or in the the words of 
of people outside a refuge in Sangha is not just, the, it's, as you said, the Arya Sangha, those who have awakened to the teachings or the monastic order. But what is the, the real safety is only within the attitude that we have. So these three qualities are talking about qualities of, of attitude or um, uh, say internal qualities. So whereas the, uh, the, the refuge in Buddha, you can say Buddha is the, the fundamentally ultimate subject rather than than um than thinking in terms of of i you know i think i feel i'm practicing i you know, I, I am awake then taking refuge in buddha is is to let go of that um uh, self-centered way of, of holding and, and expressing things and to uh, to be awake so that we we say that that that's uh, the fundamental subjective quality. That feeling of uh, of knowing, that quality of awareness, is is the Buddha itself. Taking refuge in Buddha is then being awake, being aware, without that in, being encumbered with a, a sense of I and me and mine. So, as Buddha is the ultimate subject, then the Dhamma is in in essence the ultimate object. So, the Buddha sees the Dhamma. The Dhamma is the the way things are, or the the very fabric of the of reality. Um, so that then with the qualities of Dhamma, apparent here and now, timeless, as we were having that conversation the other day, it doesn't give you a lot to <laughs> to, to sort of hang anything um, off of. It, it, there's not much traction you can get on those, those qualities. Apparent here and now, timeless, encouraging investigation, leading inwards. Um, and uh, the... Uh, the in essence, in the, when we're taking refuge in Dhamma, it's that quality of, of the awareness being attuned to the, the way things are. And, uh, it arises from a letting go of, um, opinion, letting go of all the biases that we have, letting go of, of the, um, the judgments of like and dislike. And so that there's an attunement to the way things are and, and also letting go of time, like, so you're also letting go of how things used to be, or how they could be, or how they should be, or how they might be. Um, so the refuge in Dhamma is a is letting go of of the um, of the false images of past and future, and committing the 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 attention to the reality of, of this present. Uh, and also in in one of uh, Ajahn Chah's descriptions in the very beginning of his the collection of his teachings. Uh, food for the heart. There's a, a little description of, of uh, Buddha and Dhamma that uh, came from a, a dialogue, uh, session of questions and answers, and uh, and he makes the same dis- description that the Buddha is the one who knows. It's that which is awake and wise, that which is knowing within us. Dhamma is the, you know, the truth of, of the way things are, the truth of nature, um, and its qualities can be summarized as purity, radiance, and peacefulness. So when the Buddha sees the Dhamma, when the wisdom mind sees that the way things are, when when there is that quality of, of attunement, then that the felt experience of that is a quality of, of peacefulness, of, <coughs> of brightness, of uh, purity, of spaciousness. And um, also, Lumpur doesn't use the same kind of phraseology here exactly, but uh, he said, when the Buddha sees the Dhamma, what arises is the Sangha, is a phrase he would use quite often. I've also copied that as I copied <coughs> dozens, hundreds, or probably thousands of his phrases <laughs> in many, many teachings. So when the, when the Buddha sees the Dhamma, what arises is the Sangha. So what that means is when the awake mind uh, sees the way things are, then what arises is virtuous action, uh, action which is attuned to time and place and situation, action which is compassionate and kindly, and appropriate, and uh, as he says uh, here, that uh, you know, taking refuge in sangha is, uh, and this is the kind of phraseology I like to use. Um, it's say taking refuge in that in us which loves the good, which inclines towards the good, which which delights in in the wholesome. So, uh, whereas say refuge in Buddha is choosing to be awake, refuge in Dhamma is uh, attuning to the way things are. Refuge in sangha is then is talking about the the quality of of um, wholesomeness and also the direction for action and the motivation for for action and engagement, and so that that is choosing to follow that in us, that in us which loves the good rather than that in us which loves indulgence or 
you know, irritation or complaining and so on. Uh, the other day we were having that discussion about um, the uh, about anatta and then using the uh, and the um, the the the, uh, the Vedic um, expressions of uh, uh, or the the use in Vedanta of of I am and I, I realized after the the conversation I totally forgotten the most obvious reference for that or most obvious instance of that where there's a <coughs> passage in one of the Upanishads I believe. Uh, where the, the this phrase tat twang asi means that you are that is uh, is taken as a, a central theme like you are the ultimate reality you are that reality everything that is you is that reality and so uh, um and then there's a also that's developed as a theme for reflection investigation and also um many of you might be familiar with the the book of uh, Srinas Nisargadatta's teachings i am that which is uh, which ahang asmi is uh, the both the Sanskrit and the Pali I think ahang asmi I am that which is uh, in a way is, is totally comparable to this um, uh, uh, this kind of phrasing that Lumpur Sumato uses here um, we are aware now take refuge in Dhamma now as an immediate action as an immediate reflection of being the Dhamma being that very truth so that quality of, of being Dhamma um, so rather than constantly thinking in terms of becoming something in the future, we take refuge in being Dhamma in the present. So this is a phrase that Ajahn Chah would also use, and there's a, one of his the most recent collections of his teachings is called Being Dharma. It was a collection of uh, talks translated by Paul Breiter, um, published by Shambhala. If it's, not, it's not one of the free distribution books, but it's a, we have copies in the library. And because Lumpo Chah, would, he would... Uh, uh, use this succession of uh, graduated um, immersion into the teachings, into the practice, would be uh, he'd, he'd lay it out in the, the form of, first of all, hearing Dhamma, <coughs> hearing Dhamma, and then yeah, practicing Dhamma, then understanding Dhamma, then realizing Dhamma, and then being Dhamma. This whole sort of succession. So, hearing it, um, putting it into practice, understanding it, you know, intellectually, and then realizing it in terms of of a, of a deeper truth, and then finally being dhamma. So, there's, there's not a me who's practicing dhamma, but dhamma knowing its own nature. And uh, again, when we talk in those terms, it can seem like, oh, well, that's something out there. It's this sort of dhamma is this kind of cosmic stuff out there this sort of and this kind of mysterious formless ethery other <laughs> that's, that's elsewhere uh, so in using this kind of language and talking in this way it's it's helpful to keep thinking no it's it's this is the very very fabric of our life so you can translate the word nature as dhamma so every, is there any aspect of, of our body or our mind or anything here that, that is not part of nature Even things that are fabricated, like this, this, this recorder, it's it's all part of, it's all made up of natural materials. It's put together by human beings, who <laughs> are all part of the uh, natural order. There's no aspect of, of, of our physical or mental being that isn't part of nature. So, you are dhamma. Everything that you are is dhamma. Everything that, you, that you've ever been is dhamma. So that walking around thinking, well, I don't understand the dhamma. I don't know what this 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 teaching is is about. You know. I'm here and the truth is out there and I haven't got it yet. That's the, the kind of model that we, we create for ourselves. But, <clears throat> and that, or that, oh, it's out there and I want to kind of get it sometime. <laughs> and then when I've got it, then that'll be good. Like, as if we were lacking something. But it, it's rather like, um, apparently my grandfather used to do this all the time. My father's father. Has anyone seen my glasses? Yeah, I, I know they're around here somewhere. I know, you know. Where are my glasses? And my dad, when he was a little boy, would take great delight saying, they are in your head. <laughs> but, uh, you're, you're wearing them all the time. It's, all, it's right with you all the time, but you don't, uh, you don't see it. Or using the example that Lumpur Sumedha would uh, often refer to and comes in later talks of his, as, has anyone seen my eyes? I'm looking for my eyes. Yeah, I've, I've been searching around everywhere and I can't find my eyes. Does anyone know where they are? Have you, have you seen them? 
Imagine Samedo's totally lost it. He's, <laughs> he's using his eyes to look and he's looking for his eyes. Well, you know, what an idiot. And, but that's, uh, I would suggest that's rather how it is. So when you, when in the, the, the Vedic, uh, language, uh, the, in the, from that tradition of saying, you know, I am that or, or you are that. Yeah. So saying you are Dhamma or I am Dhamma. Then, as he said, it's not saying like, or oh, I am Buddha as a sort of personal, uh, characteristic. But um, you know, I take refuge in in Buddha in a way that what it means like the the uh, I let go of of the um, the sense of I in and surrender to the to the presence of the quality of the the Buddha. I let go of of the sense of of uh, me and mine and uh, and, uh, <clears throat> and so when he's saying you know, being Dhamma, it's not like a, a um, uh, sort of squishing the <laughs> the dhamma down to be sort of carried around by me, this personality. But there's a surrendering that that realization happens through a surrendering of the I and me and mine uh, qualities. It's like seeing the transparency of those. So that that's why I like to use this phrase dhamma, being aware of its own nature. And uh, <clears throat> this is uh, um, a uh, yeah. A, a, a subtle way of speaking and maybe seem a bit out of uh, out of reach for for many people, but I feel it's it's useful to have that framework, just to take that into your heart. And when you're, you're sitting in meditation, doing sitting walking meditation, just to to take a phrase like "this is just dhamma aware of its own nature," and then see if you can find anything wrong with that. <laughs> see if you can, if there's anything that that uh, that counteracts that. And then, and then in, in, in that investigation, then there'll, here and there, there'll be a moment of, oh, that's right. Wow. So what does that say about, uh, you know, me and my problems or my responsibilities or my, my debts, my, <laughs> my plans, my family, my, my uh, incurable problem? <coughs> so what does it say about that? And just letting that, uh, that kind of insight, uh, that understanding percolate through and let it have its, have its own effect on the way that we relate to what we think we are as a, as a human being, as a woman, as a man, as old, as young, as a, a monastic or as a layperson. You're letting that, that understand that reconfiguring of, uh, of the way that the world is seen, the way that we are seen. Let that have its, uh, that change of vision have its own effect. As also, I was remembering, um, as he said, um, the uh, the impersonality of Dhamma bothers other pe- bothers many people, and um, that uh, yeah we're not uh, you know, the, the uh, we're not taking refuge in in Buddha as um, historical figure, um, and um, I was and the uh, I was re- remembering a, a statement I was I stayed at the uh, the Sri Ramana Ma- uh, Maharshi ashram in uh, Tiruvannamalai in southern India and um one of the stories that they they say about uh, uh Sri Ramana was that uh, one time he said uh, if the Trimurti if if um if uh, uh Brahma Vishnu and Shiva showed up here at this ashram I'd tell them to get lost you know, they don't belong. They haven't the the Trimurti, the you know these three great deities. They have no place in this ashram. This is not a a place for this for for that. <laughs> he was a very gentle person. He wasn't sort of having an angry reaction, but he was pointing out that um, that that kind of externalizing of those qualities or making them into a a, a deity um, that is is worshipped is is missing the the point. We're not, as he said, the Dhamma is impersonal. We don't in any, any way try to personify it, make it any kind of personal deity. And so I, I was reminded of that when I was reading the, those those words. That uh, was uh, also in that same Advaita Vedanta, the non-dualistic uh, approach. It says a a um, deflating of that uh, the habit of putting the, the truth or the the good or the the real out, out there. Like it's in these deities. It's embodied. Uh, uh, over there in in Brahma, Vishnu, Shiva, or in the Buddha, uh, as the, uh, the you know the truth, the good is out there, and I've got to reconnect with it. And um, that just as with this this uh, Dhamma practice tradition, and with um, 
the uh, the traditions of Advaita Vedanta, there's the same kind of. It's not out there. <laughs> where where is out there? You know, it's all it's all here in you. So um, then, uh, yeah. Also, just maybe the last thing to say: how um, people would often come to Ajahn Chah and uh, ask him to bless amulets and do. Um, and medallions and things, and often people were you know, worried about getting uh, <coughs> getting shot or uh, attacked by bandits, or um, going uh, soldiers being sent off to the to the um, border wars and such like. And uh, even though he would he would give this kind of teaching, he would uh, he'd make you work for it. You know, <laughs> he would uh, he would sort of give this kind of teaching and say, well, that's not going to protect you. It's just a little piece of metal. What's that going to do for you? Yeah. And then he would explain how taking refuge in, in Buddha, Dhamma, and Sangha would be, yeah, as internal qualities, that's what really protects your heart and it's really going to do you some good. So he'd give, you, he'd give him a bit of a working over and then he'd take the medallion and bless it. <laughs> so so he, would, he would do that. He, he, wasn't, he wasn't sort of a total hardliner. He would, uh, he would kind of carry out the ritual and so... Uh, I, here, I, since I've been here at Amravati, it wasn't. I didn't ever do it when I was in the states, but I, I've done more. I've sprinkled more people and tied more strings on <laughs> on people than uh, in the last three years than I have in the last thirty. So there's a lot of blessings that uh, people are always looking for for uh, marriages, babies, you know, just uh, or just family visits, birthdays, New Year, New Year's Day. I tied about three hundred strings on people. I count, I count them. It's a sort of mindfulness exercise during the day, and so when there's time to have an engagement, you know, then what I'll always say, well, how do you think the string is going to protect you? If I sprinkle you, what, you know, what, um, this isn't. This doesn't mean that I'm guaranteeing that you're going to pass your exam, or that your court case will go well, or that uh, you know you're going to get a promotion. This is. Uh, but what I can't. What, what this blessing will do, it will help to remind you of this place. And it reminds you that, uh, as Lumpur says here, that it's entirely up to you. It's up to your attitude that you have towards things. And I say, you know, you'll never find anywhere in the Buddha's teachings where he says, "If you follow me, you'll never get ill," or "If you become, if you if you take refuge in Buddha Dhamma Sangha, everyone will always like you, and you'll always pass every exam." He says, "There's no way. He just doesn't. He never says that. There's nowhere in the canon you can get anything that that, that suggests that." But what you do have <laughs> is that what makes the difference is your attitude towards things. That's what uh, is the, the key piece. And like Lumpur is uh, saying at the very end there, which uh, he he comes across quite strongly, saying, um, you know, even if people mistreat us and um, people are uh, acting in an unfair way and we live under an oppressive government, it's still up to us whether we... Um, uh, we create a problem out of it or not. There's no one else to blame for our suffering now but ourselves, our own ignorance, selfishness, and conceit. And so, the, uh, obviously, you could make a whole you know, dialogue about social justice and how governments can be, there are different degrees of unfairness. But what he's talking about there is the most sort of fundamental level of, of attitude, and that's reflected also in the the Buddha's teaching what he calls this, what's called the simile of the saw, which is, I believe, uh, Sutta number twenty-two in the Majjhima, where the, he the, and the Buddha was very good at coming up with these images that are attention-grabbing and very memorable. And he said, if if you'd been a, a kidnapped by bandits and they were cutting your arms and legs off with a two-handled saw, you know, anyone who gave rise to aversion to uh, towards those people who were who were um, uh, doing the the killing. Uh, on account of that, they would not be following my teaching. That's a pretty Olympic standard. I mean, it's like setting the bar at like five foot six for the first jump. You know, <laughs> it's a pretty high standard, but it gets your attention. And he's deliberately using an extreme image, like you know, even in that situation where you'd think a little bit of re- you know, a little bit of hatred would be reasonable. You know, you, you know, it would be quite understandable, or okay, to get a bit angry, a bit upset. He's saying no. That the rather you should, you should cultivate the heart of loving kindness. And that chant that we do, the um, 
Metta sahagatena, I will abide pervading one quarter with a heart imbued with loving kindness. That's in the simile of the saw. So as they're cutting your arms and legs off, yeah, that's what you should be doing. Yeah. I will pervade abundant, exalted, immeasurable. Yeah, may these beings be um, yeah, free from all suffering, cultivating compassion, kindness, and um, sympathetic joy and serenity. So he's, he deliberately sets the bar pretty high and certainly gets your attention. But what he's saying there is that yeah, even in the most extreme of situations, the most unwanted and difficult testing situations, what you absolutely wouldn't choose, it's still up to us. It's still up to us to to make it into a problem, to, to for the mind to dwell in aversion, in hatred, in restlessness, in complaining. It shouldn't be this way. In that little book of recollections about Ajahn Chah um, that I was reading on his uh, death anniversary day, Ajahn Manindo recounts the story of how uh, he went down to, to Bangkok. He had his, he had his, uh, some fairly serious knee problems and uh, he was persuaded to have both knees. Well, he was told that, well, we'd, by the doctors, we'll do one knee and then we'll let you recover and then we'll do the other knee uh, after the first one's, first one's recovered. And he said, well, how long will that make me in Bangkok? No, about, well, about three months. He said, oh, no, 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 we'll just do both at once. You know, it'll, it'll reduce my time here. And uh, the, so the doctors did, and uh, of course it made it much, much more difficult and had all kinds of complications. And so then uh, a, a while later, Ajahn Chah happened to be um, there and he asked him, How's it going? You know, in the, uh, <laughs> how are you? Know, how are you? Fateful question. And Ajahn Manindo went. He, he describes how he launched into this whole sort of moaning diatribe about eh, it's, it's not fair, and they said this, and it, was, it hasn't worked out. And so this has gone wrong, and that's gone wrong. And, you know, poor me. And, and the main, the main theme being, it shouldn't be this way. And uh, and Ajahn Chah was completely unsympathetic, and just said, if it shouldn't be this way, it wouldn't be this way. You know, what are you talking about? <laughs> you know, you're you're, uh, you're just uh, creating a lot of uh, extra suffering around the, the condition of the body. You made your choices, and things have happened as they have. They have. It's don't don't make yourself more miserable uh, out of the conditions as they are. You're you're torturing yourself. You know? And that the if the mind goes off into how how it ought to have been and how it should be, then you're, you're just uh, piling more dukkha on top. So that uh, in Nampur's words here at the end of this this teaching, it's not saying that we can't do things to improve the government or <laughs> we can't, um, yeah, see, do things to help uh, our living situation to to be a bit more harmonious and to create less friction and to help others along. It's not being it's not encouraging a total passivity, but more a sort of a layer below that that. Even when there's there's nothing you can do, and you have an incurable illness, or you have something that you can't be fixed, that, uh, it, uh, that there is something that is is unchangeable or unworkable, it's still up to us. Even if it has been totally unfair, it's still up to us whether we make it into a problem. That's the power that, that we have. That's the strength that we have. So that's enough, I think. To is there comments, questions, reflections? Yes, Mike. Is there any um, place in, in Buddhism for the devotional path? So particularly in Hinduism, you know, mm-hmm. there's this huge devotion, and I've said it with, them, I don't know, with the Tibetans. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the forest tradition seems to... Uh, not really encompass that, and we know that's what that's what the practice of Buddhism in Thailand and Sri Lanka. A lot of it is devotional. You mentioned the mm-hmm. Well, the the I'd say in the generally in the Buddhist world, I'd say ninety ninety five percent of of Buddhist practice is devotional. And you know, even within this forest tradition, or just like at um, you know the Sri Ramana Ashram, you know, you have it's kind of interesting how. Uh, uh, so Ramana Maharshi says, you know, if the Trimurti shows up at this ashram, I'll, tell, I'll just tell him to get lost and you know, get out of here. 
in the actuality of life in the ashram now is that they have pujas going on in the main shrine hall much of the day. <laughs> and that, so that, to say, that yes, there is the, the sort of wisdom teaching and, and this emphasis, but people love their pujas and that that's much more tangible. And that, and similarly, in all of the forest monasteries, no matter how much you try to emphasize meditation, there's always a devotional element in there to, to some degree. And it's not, um, it's not anathema, but it's more, it's, it's held with the quality of understanding. It's held as, well, this is not the central thing. Whereas for, for most people in the Buddhist world, like most religions around the world, it's the, the, the obedience to the form and the, the performance of the, the rituals becomes the, the, the whole thing. There was a, um, there's an interest, there's a book called, um, I think it's called The Wheel of Birth and Death uh, by John Blofeld. who was an English uh, author who lived in China for a long time, and, and uh, also in Thailand, I think. And it describes a visit of his to, uh, there's a description in there of a visit of his to uh, the monastery of Master Xu Yun, who was the greatest uh, Buddhist master in China, um, who lived to be 120. And um, he went to, to visit Master Xu Yun's monastery, and he said, uh, uh, as, as he was being shown around, I'm very surprised you got all these shrines here. You know, that I thought this was a Chan monastery. And that you were like the, the, the you're the great Chan master, you know, sort of the, the wisest sage and greatest Chan master of, of this era. Yeah, well, what's with all these people chanting? And what's what's what are all these shrines and these these different images doing here? And uh, and Master Xu Yun said to him, "Well, when uh, <coughs> when Farmer Yang comes here and says, can you say some prayers for my rice my rice crop because the rain hasn't come yet.'" Am I going to talk to him about the nature of the one, of, of the one mind? You know, <laughs> no. <laughs> it doesn't mean it. He wants to, he wants to to have something that's going to help his plants. Yeah, that's that's the level that uh, he, would, he he can understand on. But he can't do anything about the rain. Well, I think he could actually. <laughs> but he, I think he was probably very capable of doing whatever he wanted to about the rain. I mean, if you want to know a story, um, so his disciple, Master Hua, whose his monastery is close to a Bayagiri monastery, and he actually donated half the land of a Bayagiri monastery. There's a story in uh, uh, in the Sixth Patriarch Sutra. Uh, it's a, like the translation of the Platform Sutra and Master Hua's commentary on it. And the, the nun who did the the uh, translation, Bhikshuni Hengyin, she... Uh, she was describing one time how when they'd all gone to Taiwan, this group of five of them to, to receive higher ordination in Taiwan, and she was talking to Master Hua on the phone. He was back in San Francisco, and he said, so well, how's it going? And she said, well, it's really great. It's very inspiring. It's a very good monastery. They have a very good standard of practice, and um, it's, uh, you know, they, we, it's a 108-day training session. We're about 48 days into the 108-day preparation for the ordination procedure, and and uh, yeah, so that everyone's in very good spirits. The only problem is that it's raining. So it's, it's forty-eight days of straight rain. You know, it's just it'd be really nice if there was a bit of a break in the weather. And he said, <coughs> "Are you serious?" And she said, "Oh well, yeah, it'd be nice." And the rain stopped. And she's holding the phone, and it'd been bucketing down for like forty-eight days without a break. Take it as you will. If you if you are if you're experiencing the uh, the uh, the feeling of suspicion or <laughs> disbelief, fine. You know she's a bhikshuni; she's not allowed to tell lies. That uh, maybe it was a coincidence that after uh, you know a month and a half of, of constant rain, it just at that moment happened to stop by sheer chance. But um, anyway, most the. Uh, I suspect that someone of the spiritual capacities of Master Xu Yun could, could uh, help things along in terms of the rice crop or not. But, rewinding a little bit, the most important thing is that he uh, <clears throat> there's that connection of the individual with, uh, with the monastery and then the trust in the, the teacher and then also that sense of being cared for, that, that uh, they are 
belonging to a larger group, there's a, a mentor who cares for them. Um, they have some, at least some friendship and fellowship and some support in during their difficult times. And so even if it is just um, the, the repetition of some words, then, uh, then in that, then uh, obviously I wasn't there, at least not that I know of, <laughs> but uh, just as I do here, when I say to people, you know, it's not, the string isn't going to guarantee that you get through your exams, that's up to you. <laughs> You've got to do the learning, you know, you got to, You've got to do the homework to get through the exam. But this, what this will do, it will remind you of the monastery. It'll help you to be more uh, relaxed, you know, help you to be less anxious. If you're less anxious, you'll think more clearly. You'll be able to use your memory more effectively. And so you'll be able to draw on the resources that you have in a better way. So um, the, uh, just the, it's not just a, a black or white thing, that there are these other dimensions to it. So even if the the farmer can't relate to the profound teachings and he just wants to, to make sure his rice survives. Uh, <clears throat> just having the, the connection with the, with the Dhamma teachings and the practice is going to be helpful in terms of, even if the rice doesn't make it or there, there are other difficulties, he's got resources to draw upon that will help him through. Yeah. yeah. Um, for my own clarification, um, Taking refuge in the Dhamma, I mean, it sounds so abstract. Uh, initially, it sounds like a very, well, what, what is, the, you know, what is that? Is that the Buddha's teachings, or uh, is that the way phenomena manifest? So, in terms of the Buddha's teachings, it seems to me it was very clear that the Dhamma is for getting across the screen, getting across the flood. It's a, a raft. In fact, at one point, he abandoned this particular Dhamma, the, mm -hmm. the, the teaching. On the other hand, there are the specific teachings of how to practice, how to meditate, how to actually understand phenomenological reality, what we're experiencing, you know, whatever is arising is only suffering arising, whatever ceasing is only suffering that's ceasing. Um, the way we might observe Uh, our experience in terms of uh, causation and, and our conditioning um, and the fact that there's not only sort of a, a mundane um, uh, dependent uh, co-arising but there's a transcendental dependent co-arising. These more the, is this more the Dhamma? Sort of viewing the way things are What we're taking refuge in? Uh, I, I, I mean, as I say, that's part of it, but essentially, it's as it's like taking refuge in nature rather than your personality. So, it, it like not taking your life personally, to use another of Lumpur's tomatoes phrases. So, rather than seeing it, the the world in terms of me in here, the world out there, and, and not seeing the things in terms of of um, <clears throat> the um, the past and future and what what I, I like, what I don't like, what uh, I think is good, what I think is bad. It's sort of letting go of the uh, of the the personal perspective and seeing things in terms of nature. So that then, when there's <clears throat> when there's a feeling of anger arises, then it's seeing oh, this is an angry this is an angry feeling. It's not seeing that I am angry. Or that anger, even or even that anger is a bad thing. So oh, there is this is an angry feeling. <clears throat> There's a, uh, a, a like a, a letting go of that personal perspective. So essentially, when the, the way I, I hold it for myself is like seeing things in terms of of nature, rather than in terms of than in terms of self and other, or in terms of yeah, m yeah, my thoughts, my 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 ideas, my preferences, and. That's how. I, so it's not really in terms of dhamma as a refuge, as an internal quality. It's not so much the um, dhamma teachings or, or methodologies, but the, in a way, the fabric of reality. That makes sense. Yeah. 
But I mean, we're using those methodologies, those suggestions. Yeah, we're using those to, in order to, to actually get to the point. To, yeah, you use right. those methodologies to arrive at that realization of that. But it's rather like the Dhamma. The Dhamma is the substance. The Buddha is the function, and then Sangha is the manifestation. And what's constantly, I'm, I'm compelled to take myself as a refuge, and what I'm constantly getting tripped up by is this very compelling sense, and I need to abandon that and take the impersonal as refuge, the actual, what's actually happening in nature as a refuge. Yeah, and the and the the, the 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 fabric of your the, the very fabric of your body, the fabric of your thoughts and your feelings, that seeing these as natural phenomena, rather than my thoughts or my memories, my body, just this is air, oxygen entering and leaving the body, nitrogen, carbon dioxide entering and leaving the body. This is, these are attributes of nature. This is uh, phosphorus, nitrogen, carbon. Uh, this is you know, organic matter. This is a part of a natural system. So it's de depersonalizing, taking away that veneer of this is my body. I'm here, and <laughs> the world is out there, and uh, and and seeing in, in a sense the, the fabric of experience <coughs> and the fabric of of your of the reality of what you and what, what you and everything is, and the the refuge, as I was alluding in the way I, when I was talking about it, is that quality of attunement, like attuning, this is how I experience it anyway, but it's that quality of, of attuning to nature. Like, so we use words like being in harmony with nature. And the more that, that, that the, <clears throat> the attitude is in tune with, with, with nature and is harmonized with that, then the felt experience of that is peacefulness. So that when the, like that uh, discourse to Megia I was quoting last night in the Dhamma talk, when the Buddha says, to be free of the conceit I am, that is Nibbana here and now. So when we drop that I-making and my-making feeling, that, that when that's seen through, when that's recognized as transparent, then <laughs> the, the effect is peacefulness and clarity, brightness. Uh, so that uh, Ajahn Shah would say, like he used that, the experience of, you know, of the the Dhamma, the Dhamma is uh, takes the form of of, uh, of purity, of radiance, of peacefulness. So then, and then the refuge in Sangha is then what manifests from that, from that attunement. Then. What manifests is, is wholesome action, the, the love of the good and, and the, the kind of re, repulsiveness of the unskillful, the kind of withdrawing from the unwholesome and the, the selfish, the, the cruel. Does that make sense? I realize this is kind of um, not exactly airy fairy territory, but <laughs> it's, it's, uh, it can be difficult to, to talk about, but that's how I, I use that. And so, just to, you can the best way, ways to explore this kind of thing is is just to take a simple phrase like being dhamma or being nature and just just bring that up in the mind and just let it have its effect and uh to uh, to see how that that re reshapes the way that the the you know the world is experienced how you feel yourself and how you feel the world to be and and then and then you notice when it's like, oh, well, I'm worried. Well, I've got to do this job later today. Or <laughs> what does so-and-so think about me? And you know, I wish I didn't obsess about this character. And, and I've really got to phone so-and-so. And then you realize, oh, th this is the feeling of not being nature. This is the feeling of being me. He's <laughs> got this list of responsibilities and likes and dislikes and fears and hopes. And then... And then you, then recognizing that the mind's drifted into that self-creating habit, I am this person. I've got these. I've got these duties and these issues and this like and dislike. And then, see, and then to explore it, like to say, okay, well, what part of all these dislikes and, and likes are not part of the natural order? What aspect of, the, of these memories and plans uh, is not part of, of nature? What memory is not part of the natural order? What plan is not part of the natural order? Oh. <laughs> and then that's that self that selfing 
falls away or is seen through and then uh, then even the most personal memories or responsibilities or plans the, your, your name is etched on extremely clearly and deeply they are uh, they are still seen or even the no matter how much they might seem to be me and mine personal, they, they're still aspects of the natural order. And then in that, in seeing that, then what 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 takes shape is the quality of of, of peacefulness, and there's and there's a great freedom in that. Okay, I think that's enough for today. Annamayang dhammagata sadhukarang dadamase sadhu sadhu sadhu